Hello and welcome to the Korean Beauty Show podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, K-beauty expert, founder of K-beauty brand Jellyco, and your guide to the world of Korean beauty. On today's episode, we are going to wrap up the second of our two-part series, taking a little bit of a look back through K-beauty history, recent history really. We're talking about the last 12 or so years uh, and just having a chat through how the industry has changed, how the brands, the products and the markets have changed. And on today's episode, I did want to have a little bit of a look ahead and do some predictions for where I think everything will be heading, trending in the next, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years. Uh, If you haven't already listened to part one, then you can go back and find that in your podcast feed. It was last Thursday's episode. I think we were around uh, episode maybe 137, 138, but don't quote me on that. Uh, Basically two episodes back. If you head back in your podcast feed, you can have a listen to that. Uh, And of course, the reason for this little, uh, you know, interlude, this little trip into the past is because the podcast has reached a cool milestone of 100,000 downloads and I just thought what a better way to celebrate a milestone and look forward to the future than taking a look back at where we have come from. Uh, I think I I know for a fact that some of our listeners have been K-beauty fans for as long as me, maybe even longer, I'm not sure, but a very, very long time. But then we also have a range of people that have maybe gotten into K-beauty in the last five years, in the last two years, uh, maybe uh, even just getting into Korean beauty now uh, and, you know, maybe don't know how things started, where, you know, all of the brands, the history behind them and things like that. Obviously, I don't have time in, you know, 20, 30 minutes to go through the history of every individual brand. Although, you know, if you're interested in that, I guess we could do that. You'll have to come and find me on the gram. Let me know if that kind of thing is of interest to you. I am, of course, lauren.kbeauty on the gram. But for today, I'm going to be taking more of a helicopter shot, a broad brush uh, approach to just how K-Beauty managed to get such a competitive edge over the rest of the market. So last week, I was mentioning that one of the big things that really set K-Beauty apart was responsiveness to the consumers and also the, I guess, willingness of the K-Beauty brands to actually talk to their customers in real time to find out what they wanted, what new releases they were interested in, what, I don't know, products, ingredients, all of that kind of thing, and actually then go out and create them. Now, Korea is at a really big advantage in terms of its ability to turn things around really quickly and jump onto trends because it is a manufacturing country. Uh, And I've mentioned this a lot on the show that Korea does not have natural resources in the same way that other countries do. So when it comes to building the nation's wealth and giving people jobs and things to do, Korea has produced those things and then sold them. And a lot of them are sold overseas. So things like Hyundai cars, things like uh, Samsung 
I don't know, phones, things like LG fridges, all of that kind of stuff is produced here in Korea and then sold all over the world. And that's Korea's strong point. I know a lot of people in other countries wish that they could manufacture, you know, they lament the fact that, oh, nothing's made in the USA anymore or nothing's made in Australia. The US is, you know, probably a slightly different category because it's a much bigger country with a lot more people. But certainly things like made in Australia these days, you just don't see it as much. And it's not because people don't want to make things there. It's just because there aren't the facilities. There are not people working in the factories because the minimum wage is too high for that. Uh, there are not a lot of factories because, you know, that's just not the, the way that the Australian economy has been built. So if you're looking to go and start a skincare line and you live in Australia, you're going to run into the problem that there's not a lot of options for you, that it costs a lot more and that it takes a long time. And that's a problem pretty much the world over. Uh, most countries, if they don't have a really strong manufacturing sector, they just can't jump on the trends in the same way. But that is not the case in parts of Asia, particularly China is another one I can think of that has really, really strong, obviously, manufacturing capabilities. Uh, but Korea is in a very unique situation in that they have the right mix of street creds, brand like a cool brand, and the ability to actually make it all here. Uh, and K-Beauty these days really has become synonymous with top quality, leading innovation, design, all of these kinds of things. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, and, you know, back in the early days of K-Beauty, it really was quite a struggle to convince people to take it seriously, to invest in it, to care about it. Uh, and I think we mentioned uh, last week that one of the reasons for that was it was a little bit too cute. It was a little bit too kitschy and people thought it was a little bit junky. Not everyone, obviously not me. I was certainly into it at that time, but there was a lot of that kind of product that was floating around in the market and Korean beauty did not have the same, uh, the same street cred, the same, uh, standing in the market. I remember when Style Story first started and I'd never run a business before. It was still my side hustle. I had a very, very busy full on full-time job working as a corporate lawyer. And I started the business in my spare time, basically out of my love for it because I was just absolutely obsessed by the products. I believed in them. Everyone that I gave them to them <laughs> felt the same. And I just wanted more and more people to try them and experience them. But back in those days, it was actually, I, I remember when I would send emails out to bloggers and things like that, and I would literally have to explain to them what K-Beauty was. Like, this is what it is. This is what it stands for. Are you interested in trying it? And it was actually a little bit difficult to convince uh, people to give it a try because they were like, well, look, it's not L'Oreal. It's not, I don't know, Shiseido. It's not another big brand that I know of. You know, even if they'd heard of foreign overseas brands, it was the French stuff they'd heard of, the Japanese stuff. And they just didn't have any reference point for K-Beauty Korea and what it meant. Uh, and I've noticed over the years that that has changed so much, so much so that in some markets these days, being K-Beauty is not even enough to really get you noticed and paid attention to. And America is definitely the case. 
you know, back in the day, just being K-beauty, maybe five years ago, just being K-beauty was enough to open some doors for you if you were looking to export to the States. These days, though, they're looking for more than that because so many people are familiar with K-beauty. They know all about it, uh, but it's not enough to just say, hey, we're made in Korea. It's like, okay, cool. And, uh, but that was not the case, uh, certainly back in 2014 when I started my business. Uh, And obviously I'd had many years before that of, you know, dabbling in K-beauty and, you know, selling stuff offline and things like that. We used to sell at the markets and that was just honestly crickets. Like it was just, now that I think about it, a massive waste of my time getting up the first thing, the crack of dawn, setting up this whole store. People went more for um, the clothes that we used to sell, the jewelry, the shoes than they did for the beauty products. Uh, And if you've ever wondered why Style Story has such a weird name for a Korean beauty store, that is the reason right there. We did not start out as a Korean beauty store. We started out as a Korean everything store. Uh, We had like really beautiful dresses and jewelry and earrings and stuff like that. Uh, So it was supposed to be a 365 like degree style story that you could from head to toe dress uh, in all of our products use obviously you know the makeup the uh, skincare and back in those days makeup used to sell a lot better than the skincare products Uh, so you know in the span of about 10 years that has also really really changed Uh, And the other big thing that started happening as K-beauty got more and more popular is that Korean beauty really started to influence Western brands. Uh, And I don't just mean in the in the sense that like, okay, um, you know, Pons is now doing a cleansing balm alongside their cold cream. Obviously, that's one of the ways that K-beauty has influenced Western brands. But I just think in the way that skincare even became a cool thing to talk about. Uh, Again, like it was a bit of a weird thing to jump online and talk to people about, you know, back in 2014. People were taking really, really pretty, nice flat lay pictures on Instagram and people weren't talking about, hey, this this is my skincare routine. This is how I get my skin glowy. Like even the concept of glowy skin, a totally Korean thing, really. Uh, I think to Westerners, certainly people in the States and Australia, glowy meant oily back in the day. And that was like something you didn't want. Uh, So in all of these ways, the whole way that Koreans talk about and approach their routines really started to have an influence on Western brands, the kind of messaging that they were putting out. Uh, Glossier, for example, very much has a K-beauty mantra at its core, skincare first, makeup second. That idea was not really an idea in the Western world. Now, I'm not saying they copied that, but that is very much the Korean beauty approach. Uh, For example, GoTo Skincare, which is a local Australian brand that has, you know, gone overseas. Uh, the founder of, uh, you know, of that, um, st- of that brand is a lady called Zoe Foster Blake. And I remember seeing an article, uh, that she did years and years ago in the media, basically saying, okay, beauty's too fit. F- fussy there's too many steps and everything like that but if you have a look at the kind of products that she's putting out you've basically got an entire k-beauty routine there you've got sheet masks you've got your double cleansers you've got your pore clay masks uh you know all of these different steps serum oil things like that that are very much part of a k-beauty routine even the idea of having uh 
you know, all of these different steps that very much came from K-Beauty. A lot, obviously most brands are doing that now. Most brands seem to have at least six, seven or eight steps. The idea that all of your products should be highly Instagrammable, that they should be cute enough to photograph. That is not something that Western companies used to do. If you take a look back or think back to the kinds of products that you used to see on your supermarket shelves, back in the day, like no one put any effort into it at all, not into the fonts, not into the colors. They were all very much either clinical focused or just, you know, straight up what you get is what you see on the tin. The idea of coming up with like beautiful different molds and shapes and having like cute colors and things like that in my mind is very much taken from the things that people saw the Koreans doing really well and packaging was one of them making skincare fun and making it something that you actually looked forward to doing to have a routine for yourself all of these kind of things was not talked about before K-Beauty really really took off uh, you know double cleansing again very niche back in the day uh, not that many people did it not that many people talked about it and there weren't nearly as many product options as there are these days. Now, I'm not saying K-Beauty invented double cleansing. I know that there are people in the Western beauty world that have been talking about this for much longer than K-Beauty has been making these products, but K-Beauty popularized it for sure. Like the idea of having these products uh, and of making them really beautiful and people wanting to use them, that all came from K-Beauty and then people took the idea and ran with it. Uh, BB creams, again, not necessarily a K-Beauty invention, but the majority of the products that are on the market these days are descendants of what was going on in Korea. I think it's gotten to the point now where if you go to most Western countries and see the BB cream products, they won't even be Korean products. They're just 100% a category that Western brands have taken over. Uh, and in my opinion, they didn't do a great job of uh, really getting to the heart of what a Korean BB cream was all about. Most of the Western ones that I've tried are just, uh, I don't know, a combination of maybe a tint product and a bit closer to makeup. I don't think they really nail all the elements of a traditional K-Beauty uh, BB cream. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, obviously, I'm very, very biased, so take that with a grain of salt. Uh, but BB creams was something that Korea really just you know, launched into a new stratosphere and people became, began talking about them. Even I remember the conversation in the beginning being, what does the BB stand for? No one cares anymore, right? No one's asking, Hey, what does the BB stand for? And it actually in, uh, Korean, uh, BB creams was something really strange, like beblish balm or blemish balm, you know, didn't always necessarily make sense, but no one even asks what the BB cream, BB and BB cream stands for these days. People just know the general idea, even if they've never tried a Korean beauty BB cream. So all of these kind of things, I think, are examples of how Korean brands have influenced Western brands. Obviously, there have been some acquisitions where Western brands have just bought over the company. L'Oreal, of course, acquired Style Nanda. Estee Lauder has acquired Dr. Jart. So these are now Korean brands that are owned by Western companies. Uh, that, again, you know, 
know, who would have thought it back in the day that that kind of thing would happen, but it does and it happens more and more frequently. Uh, so that is definitely a shift and a change that I've seen. The trends, I think it goes without saying, have risen and fallen a lot in the last 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, one of the big ones that I think has really died out a lot is sheet masks. Uh, I remember that being just such a, you know, people were obsessed with them. People were obsessed with writing about them in the media. You know, oh my gosh, they look like the Halloween masks. Oh, they look really scary, but you should try them. Like that was the kind of, you know, uh, talk that was going on about them back in the day. And I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about now. It's like, why were we making such a big deal about putting a sheet on our face? Like, calm down, everybody. But like the talk around it was just like, oh my God, this is just crazy. Look what these Koreans are doing. Uh, so that's kind of died away. I think as people have gotten a bit more environmentally friendly, uh, people are thinking twice before buying sheet masks, certainly we have reduced greatly the category of different sheet masks we have on our own website. Uh, and that's just because people don't buy them in the same volume as they used to. So we have had to change and adapt to the kind of products that we offer on the basis of that as well. The other trends that we've already spoken about that I just don't see that really much anymore are the overly cutesy ones, the things like the tangerine hand creams, the tomato shaped face masks, certainly not in the Western markets, potentially they do still sell well in par other parts of the world uh, maybe you know places in Southeast Asia I'm not sure but what I see that's trending in the market at the moment is not that kind of stuff the other thing I think we have kind of done away with in K-Beauty is the really gimmicky products. Um, the ones that like, you know, have like a special function that makes it a, a little bit more Instagrammable. One that comes to mind is like Eliza Vecker, their clay mask, the bubbling clay mask that used to puff your face up like a cloud. You know, that's not to say that the idea of a clay mask is gimmicky. It's obviously not at all, but I just don't see as many of those kind of products entering the market. I think that era of K-Beauty has probably had its day. Uh, I, ha I did notice that one on online news site was still promoting that mask as like, this is the best of K-Beauty. And I was like, oh my gosh, are people still talking about this? That is wild. Uh, but anyway, there you go. <laughs> Some people are still just discovering it for the first time. But I do think those kind of products have had their heyday. I don't think that that is the main focus of where K-Beauty is in this point in time, circa July 2022. Uh, I think trends that I wish would die down or people would kind of not talk about as much as they do, obviously glass skin. Like I think I, I get it and yeah, it was a thing, but I it's almost like it's been going for so long. Uh, that it's well past the point at which people in Korea are talking about beauty people or glass skin. I mean, glass skin, I guess, is just a descriptive word for the kind of skin that Korean people like to attain. But the, the idea of that as a trend, I think, you know, that's it's probably over. The other thing is snail mucin. I just don't know how long this one can keep going uh, and be talked about as a K-beauty trend. I get that K-beauty started it. Um, it's just taken on a life of its own, I think. It's just like, 
you just don't see really snail products over here. That's not to say that some people don't love them and love the results uh, and whatnot, but the fact that every article I see overseas is literally mentioning, you know, five or six snail products as, you know, the best of K-beauty. I'm just like, things have just moved on from there. Like, we are not still talking about that. Uh, so that's a little bit of an interesting one. I, I don't think it's going to die out anytime soon, but that's just one personally for me that I'm, I just find baffling uh I, I really do i think it's taken on a whole life of its own uh and you know it's not there's not that many products on the market it's a couple of products so uh, that have snail in them like there's not a lot of new releases that are coming out with snail just because that's not where the korean market is at so that's an interesting one and again another example of the growth of the industry that k-beauty doesn't necessarily always have anything to do with what's going on in Korea. I think that is probably one of the biggest shifts is that there's K-beauty in Korea and K-beauty overseas. And I'm not going to say that one is fake news and the other is real and that what's going on in Korea is the only interpretation of K-beauty because that is just not actually the case. But I do think that that is a change in the market. I think back in the day, certainly when I was first getting into it, what was being sold here and what you could get and buy and use overseas, it was the same stuff. Now, it wasn't that the same stuff was always the most popular in every market, but it was the same. And these days it's very, very different. So that is just uh, the evolution, the maturation, I think, of uh, the K-beauty trend as it as it moves globally. It kind of does get further away. I mean, look, it's this is a thing in all different kinds of... Um, cultural phenomenon you know think about the th kind of things that you eat in your country as italian food the kind of pizza and pasta and things like that and then you go to actual italy and they're like whoa that's crazy why is the spaghetti alla bolognese so popular like we don't really eat that uh, and you, then you talk to people in australia and they're like oh bolognese yeah we have that like twice a week so of course things take on a life of their own when they are transported across the world and you know that's not to say that the food is any less Italian it's just not the same as what people eat you know pizza exactly the same thing most people will tell you that they've eaten a pizza but they will ne never have been to Naples and eaten Neapolitan pizza does that mean that what they're eating is not pizza eh, not necessarily it's just different right and K-beauty has reached that point where what's going on here in Korea and what's going on overseas not, are not the same and does that matter eh, you be the judge I don't think it's the death knoll or anything like that I think probably a little bit more problematically is when journalists and things like that are trying to convince people that this is you know what's going on in the ground in Korea like it's fine that it's not uh, but you know you don't need to lie and be like oh everyone in Korea is still putting live snails on their face like that's not happening <laughs> so I think that's probably where that that's the side of the line I fall on is when it's just you know or really um, making it sound really exotic and crazy I don't like that kind of take on it it's like it's one world guys you can get on a plane and be here in like 10 hours it's not that crazy what people are doing over here you'll walk down the street and recognize most things that most people are doing like it's not another planet uh so i don't like those kind of sensationalist articles but anyway i'm on a tangent now COVID is the other thing that i think has really significantly altered the way that many people approach their beauty routine and you know i think it probably will have had an impact on the future that uh 
you know, K-beauty is going to take. I think the more that people have been at home with more time on their hands, more time to indulge in things like skincare, that's obviously going to have an impact then on the kinds of articles that are being written, the kinds of products that are being purchased. So COVID will be a really interesting one. I don't know that we will be able to properly analyze the impact of COVID until we're a few years out and see what kind of things stick around. But definitely, obviously, COVID itself has spawned a whole lot of new trends here in Korea. Not all of them have made their way overseas. Untacked skincare is one of the ones that I can think of that just hasn't really landed overseas because not everyone is taking mask wearing as seriously as we are here in Korea. So, you know, the trend doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the same way, uh, you know, to be overseas. So look, I think we will need to wait to see the full impacts of that. Now, some lamentations on my side or things that I'm a little bit sad about uh, in terms of the way that I see the industry having moved or having gone. The first one is the rise of what I call blands, or I didn't come up with this word, I've seen it before, uh, it's being talked about fashion companies actually, uh, and basically how they have changed their logos so that a lot of the fashion houses, the big ones like, you know, Yves Saint Laurent and Givenchy and all of them, then their brand logos now look awfully suspiciously similar. And back in the day, they used to be really, really distinct. So this has happened in K-Beauty as well. I mentioned last week how so many of the brands had a really, really distinct brand identity and you knew what they stood for. Um, Holika Holika is one that I forgot to mention. So their whole brand uh, theme or motto was around magic, uh, like Holika Holika casting a spell. So all of their products had that kind of magical theme infused in them. I remember they had a mascara wand that was called like a magic wand. Like that kind of really well thought out, very clear brand identity. And it's sad to me that these brand identities don't really exist anymore. There has just been this huge push towards minimalist packaging, uh, EWG certification, everyone trying to, uh, you know, have their products be green grade, the vegan cruelty free and everything like that. Now, I have no problem with vegan and cruelty free, but it does not make a very compelling brand concept if that is your only concept, your entire concept. You need more than that. Like there are plenty of vegan and cruelty-free brands around, right? If that's the hill you're going to die on, you're going to find it very hard to distinguish yourself in the market. Uh, you know, fragrance-free seems to be the big way that, that a lot of the K-beauty brands are going these days. They have collections based off mugworts, Centella, green tea, very similar pricing points. It's getting harder to distinguish between a lot of the brands. And for me, that's a shame. I think it's a real shame because that was one of the things that Korean companies nailed so well in the beginning. They were so purposeful about their brands, about the names of the products, whereas now it feels like everyone is naming their products to maximize their SEO, their search engine optimization, uh, you know, and it's just ingredient call-outs in all of the ingredients lists. Uh, so that's a big one. I don't know how we are going to get out of this rut of seeing seemingly the same brand be launched a hundred times, but it's definitely something that I am seeing. 
Uh, and I think some of this has to do with how commercialized a lot of it has become. Obviously, I'm very well aware that no one starts a brand or a business to not make money. It has always been a commercial enterprise to have a skincare brand. But I think that the way that money is being spent and how the brands are being marketed has really caused a lot of them to collapse in terms of their branding identity and what they're about. Uh, and it even really impacts on the new releases as well, uh, you know, because the more people talk about a certain ingredient or whatnot, the more people are like, oh, we have to do that ingredient too because they don't want to miss out on their piece of the pie. Uh, and, you know, I try and talk about products on this show that not everyone else is talking about. Not always, obviously. I'm aware that there's a, a limit to you know how different we can be but I just noticed that particularly on social media the same I, I see the same products get talked about again and again and it's just the same brands that have the big marketing budget uh, you know the ones that have the influencer boxes where the influencers pick a couple of products they chuck it in a box put the markup on it and sell it you know uh, they send product to seemingly every person on the gram that has a public influence uh, you know Instagram page and I think that you know those kind of brands Brands, their products are mostly fine like there's nothing wrong with them but to me they're not inspiring and they're not special necessarily I think a lot of them are just endlessly pumping out products and lines based on the latest ingredient or vegetable or whatever it is you know uh, if uh, Centella for example is the flavor of the month it's just a procession of brands doing that uh, you know if you jump onto the forums these days it's just the same kinds of posts of people doing swatches of the same products the same lip tints and asking if anyone has tried the latest release from such and such brand you know probably at the request of the brand let's be honest you know the forums back in the day were really a process of discovery and people talking about new stuff whereas now it just seems like honestly and maybe I'm a little bit cynical but it honestly seems like people are being paid to just go in and be like hey have you seen the new blah from blah uh, and I've heard that people are being paid to do things like that to infiltrate forums Facebook groups and mention certain brands and certain sellers and that they get paid for that uh, so you know that's a real shame you didn't used to see that that's not just k-beauty I know that I know that that's an industry-wide problem with the beauty industry but it does have a real impact then on the kinds of things that get made the kinds of messaging that goes around as well you know the people that um, come out uh, on their YouTube channel or whatnot and talk about how you need to avoid all of these ingredients and only use these ones. You know, you need to avoid all fragrance, all essential oils. Well, if those people are trending, then that's the kind of products that keep getting made. Even though those kind of products, realistically, a very small, tiny portion of the population need to be worried about these things. So I've seen a lot of that, bit of a, you know, a circular self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I think uh, that was particularly evident throughout the Korean sunscreen scandal. Uh, so obviously a couple of years ago, a whole lot of sunscreens got pulled from the Korean market because they had 
They were tested and found to have a different SPF level than the SPF that was printed on the bottle. Uh, and most of those products, many of them, and particularly the big ones, the reason they had gotten so big in the first place is because influencers were marketing them. Now, obviously there's no problem with people doing influencer marketing, but I think the problem in that particular scandal arose from the fact that the people were promoting them and promoting these products that aren't available in their local market. Uh, and you know, if something goes wrong with the product, there is literally no recourse for the consumer. They can try and, I don't know, get a refund for the product. And I know some people did, but if something more serious had happened, there's no recourse for the consumers. They can't go and sue a company in Korea. Like how realistic is that? A lot of the influencers are holding themselves out as having some sort of a special knowledge when in reality the vast majority of them probably 99% have no idea how Korean sunscreen regulation works no idea how product comes onto the market here uh, and you know pe people that were coming out and saying oh well, you can tell by the amount of filters in this sunscreen that it's it's going to be you know roughly SPF 50 and the scandal just proved that these people had no idea what they were talking about uh, and you know the, the the kind of uh, it, it is it is just a self-fulfilling prophecy when people come out hold themselves out to have some special knowledge people rely on them for that and then it turns out they don't actually know what they're talking about uh look i don't think it seems from where i'm standing that the korean sunscreen scandal has not had a lasting impact on the image of k-beauty at all and certainly not even on the image of korean spfs judging by the amount of uh people that i see promoting them once more on their social media pages including many of the same people that promoted the ones that all got pulled from the market. Uh, so, you know, I don't know that we actually learnt anything from that necessarily. Uh, it's all the same brands, seemingly. I, I don't know. You, you do get a little bit cynical uh, about this stuff after a while. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, th I think that's probably the biggest lamentation for me personally is just seeing how commercialized it, is, it has all become. Uh, I don't know what the answer is to any of this either. I'm, uh, I know that's really annoying that I'm not going to proffer uh, an opinion on how we get out of this. I don't know that there is a nice or an easy way out of it. Um, it's certainly not limited to the K-beauty market. I think that this is going on all over the world and certainly with, you know, beauty companies as well, all over the world. Um, some predictions for the future. I'm really hopeful that the era of clean, green, bland will come to an end in the next five years. Uh, and I think it will be because consumers will get sick of it, uh, particularly Korean consumers. I know I'm sick of it already because I think it really lacks in innovation. I don't think that it ultimately does anything to improve K-beauty as a category, but I think it's just an overcorrection from the days when everything was really, really cute. Uh, that that I think this is just a pendulum swing back in the other direction. It's like, no, 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 don't worry. We're not too cute to use. 
uh, you know, we're totally clean, we're totally green, we've got nothing that could do anything to your skin. Uh, and I think, you know, a, a lot of that has to do with, again, the same kind of influencers and YouTubers and whatnot, convincing everyone that they've got a damaged skin barrier, that they've got sensitive skin, that they can't stand any fragrances. And so I think that that's what the brands are focusing on. But I don't know that that can continue in perpetuity. I honestly think in the next five years that Korean consumers will get over it just because trends don't stick around for that long. Uh, so I think hopefully we will start seeing our way out of it soon. There is absolutely nothing to stop people from formulating perfectly safe skincare that actually works, that is not based around like five ingredients and zero fragrance uh, and minimalist packaging. Like there, there is just no need for all of these brands to all be doing the same thing. Formulation comes in many, many different shapes and sizes. Uh, there are, you know, formulations that can suit everybody with every kind of skin type. So I think we will start seeing uh, a road out of this. Look, the sooner the better as far as I'm concerned, but it is a trend. I think it will stick around. Uh, other predictions for the future. I think that we will continue to see the rise of the Amore Pacific brands overseas because their marketing budget is just unparalleled. Uh, so I think that that will continue. Uh, I also think that uh, this focus on, you know, a lot of brands that are, for want of a better word, seeming to be just copies or imitations of brands like The Ordinary. I think we will see the end of that. I think we'll see the end of the single ingredient releases. Uh, I don't think that that can continue in perpetuity. Look, I also think that Korea is going to be leading the way in terms of innovative packaging options again, particularly around the environmentally friendly stuff. This is just what Korea does the best is innovate and come up with new things. So I'm really hopeful that Korea will continue to lead the way when it comes to different options uh, and just really fun things that we can get excited about using that are also environmentally friendly. I know work is already being done on the ground here, so I think we will see more of that. More ingredients for sure. We are definitely going to see a whole crop of new ingredients because so much time, effort, energy uh, and R&D budget is being put into that at the moment, particularly around the anti-aging space. So for sure, we will see new ingredients. Uh, cosmeceutical K-beauty, maybe. I think we might see more brands like that. I think that is probably one area where I'm seeing a lot of just buzz in the industry around, um, you know, coming up with innovative solutions to anti-aging style problems, to problems of pigmentation and things like that. So more of the cosmeceutical type of stuff I think we can expect to see. Uh, so look, guys, if you have made it to the end, this has been a monster episode, a mega episode. Uh, thanks for sticking with me if you have. I hope you enjoyed taking this little walk down memory lane. Uh, look, I know it got a little bit dark in there <laughs> at parts. Uh, and, you know, don't take it, I guess, to heart too much. I still have faith in the industry. I still have... Uh, a lot of hope for the future that, you know, things will correct themselves because I don't think that we can keep going down the same path forever. Uh, I'm just interested to see what it is, basically. You know, I think everyone gets to a point where they're just like, enough of X, Y, or Z thing. And I think as someone that works so closely in the industry with the brands and things like that and see 
knees, everything going on the ground here. I probably feel it a little bit more keenly. So, you know, don't be disheartened by any of this. I would love to know if you have noticed the same things that I've noticed. If you've noticed other things, different things, anything I missed, come and find me. I love chatting about stuff like this with you guys. Uh, so you can always find me on the gram at lauren.kbeauty. I'm going to wrap it up here and I will be back for you next week with another bunch of K-beauty fun for you guys. Until then, I'll see you on Style Story. 